It's blazing hot outside. You get in your car to turn on the AC to get cold air pumping, but it blows hot air out. This issue is commonly caused by low refrigerant due to leaks in the AC system. You want an easy, all-in-one solution that will restore the cold air in no time. AC Pro Recharge Kits. Make restoring cold air easy for even those with zero DIY experience in less than 10 minutes. Save time and money versus going to a shop by picking up an AC Pro Recharge Kit today. Be a pro with AC Pro. Subscribe to the Astros Podcast. Joined by Justin Verlander getting the ball on opening day. Steve Sparks here, and I'm with Lance McCullers. Tons of interviews. Robert Ford joined by Michael Brantley. Alex Bregman. Carlos Correa returning to the lineup today. Highlights. That is lined in the right field, and that's going to get down for a base hit. High deep, and it's gone. A grand slam. Follow your favorite team. Subscribe to the Astros podcast. We definitely love playing in front of our fans in Minute Maid Park. For the H. They never said it would be easy. This is the Houston Astros Radio Network. Hi, hi everybody. Thanks for tuning in. And I hope you and your family are safe and not too bored. I'm Steve Sparks with the Astros Radio Broadcast Team. And I'm bored. This is our second installment of our Astropod. We're going to try to throw one or two of these out there every week, and we'd love a little feedback so we can interact with you guys and and keep it fresh. And with that, I'd like to integrate my guest or co-host for this episode. It's Todd Callis. Everyone knows Todd as as our cuddly play-by-play man on AT&T Sports Southwest of the surrounding areas of the greater Houston area. I think that's right. I'd like to call him and prank him first, so, so here we go. Hello, Todd. This is uh, this is Pete Putilla uh, with the Astros. I'm still out here in Florida at the complex, and uh, we're starting to get a couple of complaints from uh, the rental car company. Uh, did you turn you turn your car in, right? Yeah, yeah, I got my car in. I was only there that first trip, though, Pete. Well, it's it's about the condition. Uh, some some of them have turned them in, and you had the biggest infraction in terms of dollar amount, as far as the way you turn your car in. What what did they say? I, I what did I get charged for? Well, they're they're saying there's unusual amount of sunflower seed shells and and a skunk smell. <laughs> really? And I think they're they're charging us nine hundred dollars to scour and, and disinfect. So. <laughs> If you can send me a check, I'd be much obliged. Well, if you guys can find me some disinfectant when that's over, <laughs> let me know. I think I think all the shelves are out of disinfectant. <laughs> TK Sparky, man, what's up, buddy? Sparky, I had never talked to Pete before on the phone, so that would have been. You funny. haven't? No. So that was that was a cross between uh, my uncle Festus and uh, Roy D. Mercer. <laughs> and Foghorn Leghorn. <laughs> <laughs> nice. Well, how you doing, uh, man? Are you staying, you staying busy? Uh, trying to. I mean, there's only so much you can do around the house uh, a week at a time. As you know, we just Michelle and I, my wife and I, just got a new house a couple months ago. So we have a basketball net up in the bat in the uh, driveway, and then we have a little. I bought a little pitching thing with a net for golf. So between practicing free throws and practicing my short game, uh, that's about all I've been doing. 
<laughs> you, you know what is competitive is I think Michelle probably is. I can see her taking some charges out in the driveway. <laughs> she is. She's caught a lot of ticky-tack fouls. <laughs> <laughs> well, I, I know how you're getting your sports fix because the other day you, you text me and said you, you're betting on Sparkyville yeah. in the horse race on TV the other day. We had uh, America's Day at the races the other day. I think of all the networks, and I've flipped through pretty much all of them at this point, I think FS1 has been the most aggressive in terms of trying to find uh, some form of entertainment that's that's current. And yeah. so o- over the weekend, they did America's Day at the races on Saturday and Sunday where they showed horse racing from different tracks. And I'm not a big NASCAR fan, but they did a, a really cool thing Sunday where all these NASCAR drivers hooked into some iRacing where they were doing virtual racing. Ah. It was that was really cool. I was like totally entertained. Um, but watching a bunch of movies, reading some books, uh, catching up on some Curb Your Enthusiasm. And uh, we would love to have people over if there wasn't these restrictions. Yeah, exactly. We've been fixing up this house to try and get a a few people to stop by. But obviously right now we're not allowed to. Well, everybody's trying to get creative at at this point and find ways to, you know, with the social distancing, I mean, it's still you want to have that interaction with everybody. And uh, I know Major League Baseball, I know the Astros probably want to celebrate what would have been the uh, opening day on this Thursday. And I thought it would be cool if you and I could talk about maybe one of our favorite uh, memories from an opening day and maybe try to engage some of the fans to, to maybe gear up and uh, put something out there on social media uh, at radio at astros.com and maybe share something uh, in the same facet uh, on this Thursday. But what, what do you remember most about uh, a particular opening day, Todd? Uh, so many, right? This is uh, mm-hmm. year number 28 for me coming up plus all the years when I wasn't working when I was a a kid uh, in Philadelphia going to opening days. I I vaguely remember the first opening day uh, of Veterans Stadium, which was back in 1971. I would have been uh, five turning six that year. So I vaguely remember that. Um, But yeah, just it's just such a celebration, right? It's just it's so cool. I mean, obviously, 18 is going to stand out with the raising of the banner. Uh, when the Rays first won the American League championship back in in 08 after having uh, never had a winning season before. That was pretty cool. Never had more than 70 wins. So uh, just those two uh, and the first one in Philadelphia stand out a little bit. Mm-hmm. I don't remember much about Astrodome opening days. I was just too young for that. But I'm sure there were some pretty cool ones here as well. You know, for me, it was. It happened to be in Detroit, and I was never good enough or lucky enough to pitch on an opening day. And I was always usually the the fourth or fifth starter on teams that I played for. But I remember in particular in Detroit, and it was super cold on opening day. Go figure. But uh, it was snowing outside, and we came in after batting practice. You know, flurries outside, and when we came in, the guys were starting to play the music pretty loud. Is guys kind of do is they're starting to get ready for the ball game and our longtime hall of fame radio broadcaster walked in you remember ernie harwell right oh of course yeah so ernie comes in in a trench coat and he's got one of those english tams on as well so he looked really sweet but he had his his hands inside of his pockets of that trench coat and that music was was kind of loud and we were wondering if it was kind of be disrespectful for ernie as he walked in there and, and without missing a beat he just shuffled perfectly to the music around the entire clubhouse 
and never said a word and walked right out. <laughs> and everybody just started, just let out a huge roar just as Ernie's <laughs> back uh, left the room. But it was pretty cool. I think it was, I think it was uh, 50 cents uh, in the club and Ernie <laughs> shuffled right through it. It was great. Yeah, Ernie was awesome, man. He was a legend, obviously, in Detroit, but he was, uh, he was one of the all-time greats for sure. Hey, Todd, a lot of people know how long you're in Tampa, and you were there uh, as a field reporter when that franchise started. Tell, tell us about that. Yeah, the beginning of a franchise is something that I wish everybody had a chance to be a part of because it's yeah. incredibly cool. I mean, you're basically writing history from day one. So, yeah, to be a part of the Tampa Bay then Devil Rays in 1998. And I had been down in that area with my first job out of college. I'd been uh, a sports director for uh, what was then called Vision Cable. We did a bunch of stuff with the Bucks and the Florida State League and local mm -hmm. colleges and high schools. So I had been down there before. So I knew that was an area that could possibly get baseball at some point. So yeah. I was always – you know, it was always in the back of my mind if they ever did get a franchise that I would, you know, consider working down there. And it just worked out perfectly. Um, had a couple of years with the Mets, three years with the Phillies. And then I joined Tampa Bay at the start in 1998. And it's just everything's so fresh. Everything's so new. You're writing your new hit. You're writing history every day. Um, and I'll never forget those days. I mean, it was it was a great 19 year run I had with Tampa Bay. I still have a lot of good friends in that organization, but uh, that was incredible to start to uh, to be a part of a franchise from the very beginning. And it's a great city, isn't it? I love that whole area. Yeah, Tampa, yeah. St. Pete, Clearwater. We still have our home in the, uh, over in Tampa that we, we go visit every once in a while. But um, great area, uh, beautiful waters and beaches. Unfortunately, they're shut down for now. But, um, yeah, just a great area to spend a lot of time in your adult life. Hey, when I think about the Devil Rays or the Rays, uh, there's a couple of managers that stick out more than – than some of the others, and it's Lou Pinella and Joe Madden. And you got to have a story about one, one or both of those guys. <laughs> yeah, well, Lou is a classic. Lou still lives in the area, and I see him at his golf tournament every year. Um, and he's from Lou's, there, right? Yeah, yeah. He grew up in uh, Tampa, went to Tampa Jesuit High School, and yeah. um, one of the original Tampa guys that made it to the major leagues and still lives there. Uh, he and his wife, Anita, and their whole family, they're all over there. Um, so I see him every year at the golf tournament. He had some bad years with the with the Devil Rays uh, when he came over from Seattle. He basically loved his time with the Mariners. He just got tired of the commute. Talk about a long commute, one side of the country to the other from Seattle uh, to Tampa Bay. So he just got uh, tired of that commute and was able to get a job. Uh, they traded for him, actually, to get him over to Tampa Bay and was able to get a job in his hometown. And um, mm. he had some beautiful – Beautiful years there. Uh, he went through some tough times. I know his career record took a hit when he was there. He wasn't thrilled about that. <laughs> but um, I, I have one story. I don't know how much time we have because this one's a little longer. But we have, I have one really good story about Lou. Well, Boltsy can edit it. If, if it's too long, he can, he can cut it down. All right. I'll try and make it quick. So basically, it was during the midst of the, – the Devil Rays didn't win more than 70 games for their first 10 years of existence. That's why when yeah. 2008 happened, it just came out of the blue. So Lou was there for part of that before Joe Madden took over and Hal McCrae and Larry Rothschild prior to that. But um, so we had one particular stretch that was going, wasn't going very well. Um, just to tell you how bad it was, Lou ended up when the team finally got to 70 wins. And I think this is the year Blummer was on the team. He uh, had a champagne toast for the guys for the first 
double race team to ever get to 70 wins. <laughs> so anyway, uh, this one particular time, this guy, I don't want to name names because it would probably be, I'll, I'll name a few names, but this guy was really struggling um, with his command in the bullpen. And Lou had a pitcher on the mound who was really struggling to get who out. Who was it? The guy on the mound or the guy in the yeah. bullpen? guy on the mound. Uh, let's just, for the sake of argument, say it was Tanya's third. The more important part of the story was the guy in the bullpen was, and and the bullpen then, and still now is in play. It's in foul territory down the right field line for the home team down the left field. So this guy who was really struggling was firing every other pitch that was eluding the bullpen catcher and going down the line and stopping play. So at this, oh, oh, I know who it was. So, yeah, it, it wasn't Tanya Sturz because Tanya Sturz was a starter. Dewan Brazelton started the game. Brazelton got lit up. We went to another guy. Let's just say for the sake of the argument, it was uh, Victor Zambrano, even though it might not have been. Brazelton was so distraught with his outing that he went into his uniform straight to the parking lot and was going to leave the stadium. And who knows where it was going to happen to him then. <laughs> so our our pitching coach. Uh, while the second pitcher was in the game, our pitching coach was going out to the parking lot to try and talk him out of leaving the stadium. Meanwhile, our bullpen coach, while this other third pitcher is throwing every other pitch past our first base coach, is calling down to Lou and saying, we we, just, we can't bring this guy in. He just has he no idea where strike. the ball's going. Yeah. So Lou goes, so how about this? I got my first base coach dodging pitches from the bullpen. I got my pitching coach in the parking lot. And I got my bullpen coach saying, don't bring this guy in. How's that for a coaching trifecta? <laughs> so that's kind of that kind of sums up how things were going. And, and we had some uh, great laughs during those years. Uh, Lou had a um, bench or a, a personal coach, basically, Matt Sinatra, who was basically uh, there to help Lou along with life because those guys went out all the time. And when Lou was struggling, Matt would calm him down. And um, it was a tough time for wins and losses. But with Lou at the helm and that coaching staff. Made it fun. Uh, we, uh, and it was Billy Hatcher, by the way. Astros fans, of course, know Hatch. Oh, yeah. So it was Bill, Billy Hatcher was a first base coach dodging all the uh, the throws from the errant reliever that was warming up. Well, as, as a field reporter, you got a chance to interview a lot of people and a lot of people in the stands that came to the ball games. you remember your coolest interview? you remember one that stuck out? Uh, it's hard to beat Hank Aaron in terms of baseball. Oh my God. And then because, yeah, Hank was awesome. And, uh, we talked with him for a good five to 10 minutes. So he, he stands out in terms of baseball. And then you feel like Hank Aaron's going to show up with Dusty at the helm this year. Yeah, he He has to Dusty brings him up every day, especially because the Astros, depending on how the schedule plays out, but they're supposed to originally, on the original schedule, finish up in Atlanta. So let's oh, yeah. let's get Hank Aaron out there for that, if nothing else. So yeah, interviewing Hank was great. It was good to see him last year at the World Series um, again when he was there at Minute Maid Park. Right. Yeah, looked great. Um, I had so many cool interviews in the stands. I'm not. I mean, what I got. About, inter- what about celebrities? Yeah, I'm trying to think. That's where I was trying to go next with my interviews in the stands. Which celebrity stuck out? Paula Abdul was fun. She had a good. Oh. We had a good time with her. That's correct. <laughs> it, was, it was actually fair. Who else? Early. Buddy Hackett? <laughs> yeah, Buddy Hackett. <laughs> Nipsey Russell. <laughs> um, uh, <laughs> oh, gosh. I don't, I can't, off the top of my head, I'm trying to think who else we interviewed over the years. That was well, pretty that, cool. You I know mean, what? We, We're in the radio booth. That's what we see more than anything. We've got the monitor of you guys uh, in our radio booth, and we see Julian. 
you know, the game's going on and she's sitting next to Matthew McConaughey or Ricky yeah. Fowler or somebody. And you're just going, man, she's got a pretty good job. No, it's, it was a great gig. And we had, so for the first 10 years, we, because we were so bad, we had a lot of things that we were doing to distract the fans from what was actually going on in the field. So I had a lot of leverage to pretty much do anything I wanted for 10 years. And Dwayne Stats and Joe McGrain and myself, we, we had a lot of laughs uh, despite the losing baseball. Yeah. Hey, let me ask you this. Uh, when, when the dust settles, how long do you think it would take to ramp back up and, and start playing? I got to think it's a couple of weeks. You would know better than me. But, um, I would think at least a couple of weeks, Sparky, and then you have to have some expanded rosters because you're not going to have guys go six or seven innings in the first week right. with so only two weeks. Carry a couple up. extra what? pitchers at the beginning. You got to. You've got to have like a 28 to 30 man roster, I would think. You would know yeah. better. You need at least, again, it depends on how long, but you would at least need two weeks, right? Yeah. So I experienced this uh, coming off the work stoppage in 1995, and we had an abbreviated spring training. And it was, I think it was two and a half weeks. I'm not positive, but I think it was. And we carried two extra pitchers to, to cover the innings at the, like you said, like because of the starting pitchers weren't going to get to go too deep into those ball games. But you got to remember, that work stoppage began uh, in August of the previous year. And right. this year going to spring training this year, I think might, you know, mitigate some of that time off. Uh, yeah. And it all depends on how guys are doing in the interim. You know, if right. guys are yep. still throwing and, and keeping up that bulk work, I guess there, there's never, ever, ever a silver lining with a situation like this. But of course, uh, if there was, if there was ever a season where the Astros wouldn't mind having the start pushed back. I, I guess this would be it with Verlander's health and with their yeah. question about how they're going to cover up innings for a full season. So I got a question in on, on radio at Astros.com from, uh, yeah. from our buddy, William G Hines in Sulphur, Louisiana. And he wanted to ask you, Todd, if you had any updates on JV. Other than he had surgery, saw that hopefully, uh, you know, by the time this all gets underway, maybe JV will be an opening day starter once again. So the, like the yeah. surprising thing about that was when we saw surgery at the beginning, we were thinking, well, maybe he had something done with that lat. No, I, I, that's the groin that he had to have, have a little surgery from. And uh, again, I can defer to you on this. You know better when you, you know, one one injury can lead to another. In, yeah, in a compensation. Yeah. yeah, compensation. So. Uh, hopefully we know JV being the guy who loves to take the ball every five days and never miss any starts. So maybe, uh, depending on when the season gets underway, he will be a guy that makes his, his starts every five days this year. Like he always has. Hey Todd, you got a couple minutes. I want to throw something uh, to us. We, we got something, uh, from our buddy, Bill Brown, uh, who got a chance to catch up with, with a special guest and inductee for the Astros 2020 class, long time, big leaguer in, in many facets. Uh, let's listen to Bill Brown for a minute, Todd, with, with Bob Watson. The 2020 Astros Hall of Fame class includes Bob Watson, Roy Hoffines, Cesar Cedeno, Lance Berkman, Roy Oswalt, and Billy Wagner. This first in a series of podcasts about the 2020 class is the story of Bob Watson's career. Well, Bob Watson, congratulations on being a member of the Astros Hall of Fame class in 2020. What's your reaction to the honor? Well, Bill, it, it really... Uh excites me to receive such an honor to be selected as one of a member of the the Hall of Fame for the Astros. I mean, uh, you know, when you go back and look at your career and 
you you're being uh, recognized by the team you played with for for quite a while and had so much to do with is recognizing you as a member of their Hall of Fame. What was your reaction when you first heard about it? Well, I, I was surprised um, because uh, uh, you, you look back and uh, the number of guys and who they were that are on that uh, squad to be you know, selected to the Hall of Fame are some significant players. And to be among that group of players selected, uh, it, it makes you feel good. Among the many achievements of Bob Watson is something that was much celebrated at the time in 1975. He was credited with scoring the one millionth run in baseball history, later discovered to be inaccurate. He tells the story. Well, scoring a millionth run was not on my list. <laughs> it wasn't on my list. And, and, and I was just in the right place at the right time, to be honest with you, Brownie. Like I tell you, I was I was on second base. Count Montefusco was pitching for San Francisco, and we shouldn't have been even playing. That it was a noon time uh, in San Fran. We were playing the first game of a doubleheader, and he walked uh, he walked me on four pitches. All right, he had walked Jose Cruz to Milt May. Hits the first pitch to him, bang, home run, and. I'm on, on second. I just trotted around and scored the run. Now, in those days, if you recall, the third base bullpen was down the third base line. And so as I got to third base, the guys in the bullpen were saying, run, 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 run. So I picked up the pace and sprinted and, and I scored. Well, they come and tell me that I scored the baseball's main run by two seconds or whatever it was. And so if I don't sprint, I... I don't score the run. I, it was the Dave Concepcion that somebody yes. was yes. was flying around the bases. He hit a home run, and he's trying to do an inside the parker type thing. <laughs> and so I beat him by two seconds. <laughs> now, there's a great story about the fact that uh, Tootsie Rolls had a promotion, mm-hmm. and you got one million Tootsie Rolls. What <laughs> in the world do you do with one million Tootsie Rolls? Well, uh, at the time... I had uh, my daughter and my son was uh, like like five and three or six and four or whatever. They were real young, and I wasn't gonna, you know, get this by my wife to give those kids that, that much. <laughs> and so we ended up uh, giving the tissy rolls to um, the boys and girls club, you know, of, of five hundred thousand a piece, you know, and. But that was a, the player for scoring the run. I ended up getting a million Tootsie Rolls. I got a, a million uh, pennies, which is $10,000. I had a, a platinum watch I got. I got one. The commissioner got one. And the um, president of Tootsie Roll got one. So there were three of these platinum watches that I have in my uh, safety deposit box. And I've never worn it. How did your bank feel about you wheelbarrowing in uh, one million <laughs> pennies, <laughs> ten thousand dollars in pennies, or whatever yeah. it was? Well, those those pennies, uh, they went to the Jackie Robinson Foundation. You know, the thing though um, was that um, that event uh, got me um, some more notoriety. In, in those days, I think I probably ended up getting ten bubblegum cards a week to sign, and. Um, after scoring baseball's millionth run, 
that went up to about a hundred you know, cards a week to, to get them signed. So uh, I'm thankful for that. You were the first man to hit for the cycle in both leagues. Hmm. What stands out in your memory about those games when you hit for the cycle? Again, that's not something that you set out to do or try to do. The first time I hit for the cycle was in the Astrodome. And I got the, the hardest part of it out of the way first. I hit a triple in the first inning. Um, and it actually was, was going to be a grand slam. But um, we were playing San Francisco, I think. And Goodson, left-handed outfielder, he went up on the center field wall and flagged my ball. And it would have been a grand slam straightaway center there in the dome. But he knocked it, flipped it, and knocked it back in, and I ended up with a triple. And that's why people, how'd you get a triple? Well, that's how I got a triple. <laughs> you mean they thought you couldn't run that right, fast? Right, right. <laughs> so I, I ended up with, with the triple the first one. I, I had a home run of the double. And then uh, it was going in extra innings, I think. It would have been extra innings. I hit a, a single to, uh, to get the, a fifth hit and also cycle in that game. And then I get traded to Boston. We went into Baltimore, and Boston and, and Baltimore uh, didn't have a good vibes about each other. I, I got traded to them, so I don't know all what the nuances and whatever. And so I go up at first inning, I hit a, a single to, to left field. And Dennis Martinez, you know, right as he's pitching, and he, he left a slider out over to put in a bang base hit. And the next time up, uh, uh, I hit a double in the left center. And uh, so I got a double. So now I'm first hit and the single, second hit, double. Uh, then uh, the third time up, left-hand pitcher Tippy Martinez mm -hmm. came in and he threw this breaking ball down and in. And I whack, I hit a line drive down the third baseline. And I look up and I'm standing on third. So I got first, second, and third, uh, first three times up. And now, I uh, hit a ball off of uh, the closer in the ninth inning, Stanhouse. He was the top guy at the yeah. time. And, of course, he, he he hangs a slider to me, and I hit it over the seats in left field for, for a home run. So single, double, triple, homer. I didn't think about hitting a home run, but when uh, I hit the ball, I look up as you're around in first base here, you, you look right into the dugout, which is down the first baseline there in Baltimore, and because it kind of curved out a little bit, and it, it was going, yeah, where to go, where to go? You know, what are they talking about? Well, I had hit for the cycle in order, and apparently that's something that's very hard to do, and um, I hit it in order. Bob's wife of 51 years, Carol, picks up the story of the day Drayton McLean hired Watson to become the first African American with the title of general manager. Well, he had been called in, and him and I had this discussion. Well, you know, most of the people are have been fired, uh, so maybe they're going to get getting ready to let you go. So we had to have a discussion. Like, what are we going to do? Our bills are still going to be due, whether he has a job or not. So he says, well, I'll call you back when, when I know more about what's going on with Mr. McLean. So I got a call later on in the day where they're going to have a press conference, and I've been named the general manager. And so that was literally October 5th, which is our wedding anniversary. And I'm like, well, okay. So I get to the ballpark. I was already there. Um, we had the press conference. We 
all the things, the excitement of it and the change of it. And, oh, my gosh, the, the tension of it was uh, unimaginable. So we go back home, and both of us are too drained and too tired to do anything. So I order some Mexican food to go in the styrofoam. We were too tired to take it out of the styrofoam. So we had styrofoam and plastic that day. <laughs> it's a celebration, and it's so funny. And the next day, there was a really beautiful um, photograph of us. Um, on the front page and color and everything like that, um, looking at each other, saying, you know, we, we've arrived at something we never knew would ever happen nor exist in our lifetime. And there was that moment also when you were going back at night into the Astrodome. Tell that story. Right. So we, after we had our wonderful dinner out of the styrofoam, um, Bob said, well, I need to go back and get my car. So we drive back over and he said what we can do is we'll park the car over I think in the hotel across the street at the time and let's walk across and go get the car so we're talking and walking I said well how are we going to get in and he uh, says he you know wrestles around in his pocket and he pulls out this huge gaggle of keys he said Carol I have every key to every door in the eighth wonder of the world. Bob moved on to become GM of the New York Yankees, hiring Joe Torre as his manager. When the Yankees won the World Series in 1996, Bob became the first African-American GM to win a World Series. Carol, who raised children Keith and Kelly while becoming an accomplished artist, had these thoughts on Bob's milestone. Well, for me, when we mention race, we are the human race. I'm so grateful to have been, quote, a minority and a woman of color and him a man of color in the big scheme of things because actually the most of the, the world is people of color. So to be able to stand up and move forward and take and make and pay the price to stand up and stand apart is paramount. And I think it's a living lesson for being a principle-centered person. And so regardless of our beginnings or how we started out, the principles could remain the same, whether there was money or notoriety or any of that. So being able to be this person, if you ne if he never made it to be the general manager or the vice president, well, how are you in your day-to-day -day existence? If you are the head of the groundskeeper or if you are the person who does the groundskeeping, Will you go ahead and be the best you can with what you've been given? And that's how I saw him. He took his limitations. He took his strengths, those weaknesses. And he said, but this is what I'm really good at. And I'm going to hone in on that. So to me, that displays something that we all need to aspire to. And I'm grateful for all of those things that, that were not that easy or not that great, that he could find that one thread in himself that he could expand on and grow. And I think that's uh, something to be admired and something to be um, sought after in oneself. While serving as Major League Baseball's vice president in charge of discipline, Bob Watson helped to fund the baseball assistance team, earning the Lifetime Achievement Award from that organization. That's a part of his legacy. The Bob Watson Education Center at the Astros Youth Academy is another component. Bob Watson... Astros Hall of Famer. All right, coming back on the Astropod, I'm Steve Sparks with the Astros Radio, and I'm with Todd Callis with Astros TV. And, and Todd, you and I, we travel a lot together, along with Julia and Blummer 
a lot of us together a lot. And of course, Matt Boltz, who's who's our engineer and, and helps out both sides. But I got to ask you, what does Blummer smell like? Smell? Yeah. California surf. Really? Yeah, he's got the California like the, surf. Like the, like the feet of a surfer? <laughs> I didn't go there. You took it in a whole new direction. <laughs> uh, blummer has got his own row and i'm actually kind of tucked to the left a few rows behind him so what are you talking about on the flights yeah on the flights and even uh even on the broadcast like our booths are usually big enough that we're not sitting right next to each other and even now more than ever i think we'll be six feet apart from now on so I might not smell them as much as I have in the past. That's a good point. I've got another question. This is from Scotty B from Columbia, Missouri. And he wants you to pick five musical artists. Like if you're stuck on a remote island, and you know, this this makes perfect sense for for these days right now. Uh, Five musical artists, if you were stuck on a remote island, who would you you pick? So I have a completely eclectic list of people that I would pick. You do? Um, I totally do because okay. if I go back to like from college on my favorite album, I would go Led Zeppelin. And okay. then early on in high school, I was really into Getty Lee and Rush. So I love the fact mm-hmm. that he's a baseball fan. I had no idea that, that he so Russian and Led Zeppelin would take me back to different parts of my life. Um, my dad was always a big Sinatra guy. And I think Sinatra is a classic that will stand the test of time forever. Oh, so yeah. Yeah, got to throw good. him in there. And then I would go more recently. My favorite artist, like, like if, if you ask me what stations I play in my car the most often, you would probably be surprised. It's usually uh, hip hop, rap, that kind of thing. So I'd have to go with old school, uh, go with Biggie, Biggie ah, Smalls, yeah. Notorious Man, this is, this is eclectic. It's totally eclectic. And I got to come up with somebody fairly modern since he got me earlier on the Paul Abdul thing being not relevant to the current time. <laughs> um, hey, I'll I'm, go just, with, I'm just being straight up. <laughs> this is talking talk about eclectic. There, there's a song that always, the, the beats to his songs are always pretty solid. I don't know how many songs he has out there, but I'll just say for the sake of it, because uh, I have to pick a fifth one, DJ Laz. I don't know who that is. Miami-based DJ play. You, you, really? If you play a couple, he does like Miami Allegro, a couple of other songs that, that have a really cool beat to it. So if I'm on I, an island, I need some Caribbean flavor. So DJ. Well, at the end, of, at the end of this podcast today, Bolsey will have to play that music to to end up. I just do, jotted down. My, mine's very. Uh, mine's not eclectic. Mine are all the same. And <laughs> my five would be Ted Nugent, Earth, Wind, and yep. Fire, Nirvana. Uh, Nirvana, Carpenters, and Clay Aiken. I might have to sneak EWF in there. Yeah, that's a great call. I've seen them more than any other uh, group or performer <laughs> in concert. Seriously, Michelle and I have seen them like eight times. So I would, I would, I think EWF would have to sneak in and, and bump DJ Laz. All right, I was just joking about most of those. All right, hey, uh, guilty pleasures. <laughs> those are good ones. Well, Clay Aiken, you think I was serious about that? You're a country boy. You're thinking of Willie Mays Aikens. <laughs> Guilty pleasures. What's what's your favorite snack? I'd say wow. I, I picture you as a gummy bears guy. I do like the airborne gummies, but I don't like gummy bears. Um, if I have to eat chocolate, which I don't do very often, I'll go Heath Bar. Okay, yeah. But as a snack, probably like chips and French onion dip. 
pretty boring. Oh, nice. Okay. Yeah. Mine's an, yeah. Mine's an apple. Yeah, I had a heart attack. What was yours before the heart attack? <laughs> uh, probably ice cream. There you go. Old TV show. Ooh. Again, this, this. I'm, I'm going love boat. Exciting and for you. Old for me. No, I say I say you're all into love boat. Oh. oh. <laughs> I actually watched love boat a couple times. That was the Fantasy Island love boat, wasn't that on back to back? Possibly. It was, yep. Well, there you go. Um, I was just guessing. Um, old TV show. I would. I don't watch much old TV. My wife is way more into old TV than me. Um, Facts of uh, life. Uh, is that old TV? Yeah, that's old TV. Yeah. Oh, I'll t- leave I mean, it to Beaver. If any Letterman morning show was ever on, I would watch that. From oh, not that just his late good. night show, but back when he was on the morning show and he used to have. Um, the Carvel ice cream guy come on. Those were the best. Oh yeah. Those were, How about those Bud were Melman? You remember Bud on, on the, Oh my the, gosh. Larry Bud yeah. Melman. Yeah. yeah. He was awesome. All right. Last one. Favorite board game. If you were playing a board game, are you going to recommend it to somebody right now? What would you play? Ooh, I would say because it's a fun group game. And once we're allowed to start hanging out again, we should, we should try this game. It's apples to apples. Oh, I love that game. It's a really good game, and you can play with like four to twelve. It's really cool. Yeah, and, and yeah, it's it's very creative. So I'd say apples to apples is my current favorite game. All right, last thing I want to ask you, Todd, and, and before I forget, thank you so much for coming on. But when we're talking about this Astros team, and this is the one thing I worry about more than anything else, is that this team's energy and their connection to this city was so unique the last few, you know, four or five years that I just hope that doesn't dissipate. What do you think? It better not. I, you know, I thought about that too, Sparky. Um, It's the most unique team I've ever seen, even before I joined the team in terms of how much joy and passion they play with and how much fun they have. So yeah, I hope it's still there. I think it'll still be there. Um, I know Houston, just based on what we saw in the spring training, Houston fans, know that they're in for a rough time this year, especially on roads, road cities. But I think they're going to get behind the team even more than ever. And uh, hopefully this team, even though they're going to take a little bit of a hit, uh, will bond together like never before. Absolutely. Well, well that's it from us uh, for this episode, Todd. Uh, thanks for hanging out, man. I sure appreciate it. Always love talking to you. Be sure to tell your friends about this unprofessional podcast. <laughs> I hope we, we brighten your day maybe just a smidge. We, we miss you guys. We miss baseball. Uh, we hope to see you healthy and safe very soon. So wash your hands and see you later. See you guys. <laughs> <laughs>